had a uh, convention this past week, the Southern Baptist Convention met. You might have been hearing some about that. Let me just share with you really quick. Our convention is good and strong. Uh, going into it, uh, you, you have to kind of think about there are always extremes on every issue. Uh, don't focus on the extremes. That's, that's where our 24-hour media cycles get it wrong. They focus on the extremes. Focus on the main and the middle. And you and I represent well the main and the middle. And when I'm around the convention, folks, I recognize the main and the middle is big and broad and wide and deep. And we have very little concern about the SBC. There were some issues that obviously arose in our last convention. And some of them are what the world is considering right now. So I thought we might just touch base on that real quick. One of the issues is race relations, critical race theory, and some other uh, secular theories and cultural theories and academic trends and solutions. I like where the SBC landed on it. Uh, the SBC said, hey, the God of the Bible spoke very clearly about that, and we are people of the Bible, and that's where we're going to live. Uh, we're not going to follow the cultures and the trends and, and the academics and what they would ask of us, we're going to follow the God of the Bible and whom we are going to stand before and be rewarded for faithfulness for all eternity. So we're following him. And I, I agree with that 100% that that was the right stand to take. There's some uh, discussion about uh, sexual abuse allegations that have been uh, maybe suppressed over the ages. And the SBC Executive Committee wanted to go in one direction about that and have some governance over that. And the convention as a whole determined the membership delegates as a whole said, nope, we would like that to be independent. And that's exactly where that's charting. So I'm grateful to that. We're, we're taking a good, strong look at that and to see if there's any changes that need to be made in the practices, in the reportings, or if there has been any cover-up. Uh, and by the way, uh, Meadowbrook has for numbers of years had a strong child protection policy in place. And we, we scrutinize that and chase after that every single year. Uh, we call it ministry safe. And it, it, it requires us to be very diligent and maybe not give people the easy access into our students and our children. Uh, and we have to go through a process with that and we ask people to be patient about that but our kids safety is the number one thing isn't it and so we want to make sure that our kids are safe here at Meadowbrook and we've done that very well uh, we have a new SBC president his name is Ed Litton and he is an Alabamian and so we're excited about him he has been labeled by some to be a moderate now let me just tell you if being a moderate means that you want to embrace all the nations of the earth into the kingdom of God and you want your churches to be representative of Christ like it's going to be in heaven where the churches are multi-ethnic, multi-color, if that's being moderate, I'm one of those too. Uh, so we ought to embrace our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are standing out front saying, Jesus says, whosoever will may come. And we want to encourage all people to come to faith and come into the, into the church life. And we ought to be very, very much agreeable to that. We have 47,500 SBC churches plus. And uh, every one of them can send delegates to our convention. This is rare, a convention our size, the largest 
uh, the largest convention that I know of that does this that will actually allow any delegate to have the microphone. Now, the media loves that because every now and then you get a little bit of a wackadoodle that comes to the microphone. Uh, but that's the good of our convention because we're ruled from the convention delegates from the churches, the local churches. There is not a grand poobah of Southern Baptist that is bringing um, policies and procedures through our churches. Now, you are an autonomous church. You, you believe yourself to be led by Jesus, and so you, you are governed by him. And our denomination governs itself by its churches and the delegates of those churches. And so I'm grateful for that. I, I don't recommend you watching uh, the news cycles or read uh, secular news about the SBC life. Listen, every message is going to be out there. Every part of the convention is going to be out there in archive form. Go directly to the source and make your opinions uh, based on that, not, not based on some secular news media. They're pretty much getting it wrong. So I, I'm encouraged by where we're going. Do we have some place to, uh, to work towards? Yeah, uh, but that's life in Christ, isn't it? Just being sanctified, just saying, oh, Lord, work in me, do a new work in me. And so I hope he's doing a fresh work in our church and us individually and in our denomination as well. Now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're picking up where we left off last week, which was about mid-stride to a message. And so I want to pick back up there. I want to give you a little bit of the context where we have been. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 14. So Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, Father, by your Spirit, teach us. Work in us so that we can hear and understand what this word is saying and with your grace sustaining us, let us walk in its truths that not only may we be more like Jesus, but his name more widely and broadly known and the character of Christ more wondrously displayed by Meadowbrook. And I pray it unto the glory of our Savior. Amen. All right, so last week I mentioned uh, three phrases that are very important in this passage. They set up the truths of the passage well uh, because they are just filled with truth themselves and the first was that Christians are in the household of God we are the household of God now everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for their salvation is brought near to God and into an eternal relationship with God and that relationship is very personal he cleanses us of our sin he credits us with his righteousness and gives to us a reconciled relationship with God all things are made right the biblical word there is justified with God and thereby we are in right relationship with him. That's the reason why when Paul is penning a letter out like this letter, he often begins it with grace and peace. God's grace, God's peace is given to us in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. So in an astounding turn of events, God adopts us 
into his family as his own beloved children. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and one another. So it is through God's provision that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us to be members of the household of God, family of God. However, we did not enter this world with a relationship with God. Yes, we were made in the image of God, but every one of us forsook that image. Every one of us went our own ways, followed our own direction in life. We were like sheep without a shepherd, Isaiah says. And the Bible makes this absolutely clear throughout its text, including some of the main passages that you focus on in the New Testament, like Ephesians chapter 2, another letter that Paul wrote. Look what he says in this text. And you, speaking of those who were in faith now in Christ Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So according to the Bible, this isn't Randy's words, according to the Bible, everyone outside of God's saving grace Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sin. Everybody follows the way of the world. Everyone follows the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil. All are sons and daughters of disobedience, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of their own body and mind. And all are children of wrath, according to God. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like very good news. Oh, you have to understand the bad news before you get to the good news. You and I have to understand our need for God's grace before we really dive into the treasure of the grace. Everybody born into this world is a child of wrath, following the same course, the same sin, born spiritually dead under the wrath of God. Jesus said it well in John, the wrath of God already rests upon them, everybody. So according to the Bible, all people are dead in their trespasses and in great need of God's mercy and love, which is the reason why when we continue to read in the second chapter of Ephesians, things turn around and it causes us to rejoice. Look at these two powerful words, but God. I think those two words together are among the most powerful in all the Bible. In fact, when you read, but God, you've just got to say hallelujah to this because it's going to be good. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Anybody want to say amen to that? That's a good news, isn't it? And you were ra he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, man, what powerful words those are. But God, when those two words come together, it's transformational. But God is rich in mercy. But God is great in love and greatly loves people. But God provides life for people when they were dead in their trespasses. But God acts in grace towards us, making us alive in Christ and raising us to a new life in Christ. We who were once spiritually dead, God transforms us into spiritual living beings and placed in the heavenly seat right alongside of Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm. Such is God, 
who works in us for transformation. By this wondrous faith, we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and we determine to serve him wholeheartedly because God has worked through his son to bring transformation to us. So indeed, it is astounding when Paul says, you're members of the household of God. That's big, big news. You had no hope whatsoever, but God. He made us to be members of his house. What a glorious treasure. But that's just one phrase that Paul uses. Not only are you and I members of the household of God, but God says, oh, you and the household of God are the church of the living God. And when the household gathers together and the church is gathered like we are this morning, we are the church of the living God. This isn't just gathering together into a false God. This is gathered together as the church of the living God. And so our reading and our singing and our praying and our fellowship are all magnified because we are gathered as the living God. People who walk with Jesus have a desire to worship with the saints. You're here today. James Spann said it was going to be rainy today, but you're here today. You're here today on a holiday because you are the saints of God and God has placed in you a longing to gather with other saints, to magnify your voice, to collectively hear God's word, to be moved and shaped and empowered by the spirit of God. You're here today as part of the living God. This is a wondrous gathering. Meadowbrook is not the building's We've proven that, haven't we? We've hopped around from building to building. <laughs> but you are the gathered saints of the living God, and oh, how well you represent Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for you. Do we have a ways to go? Sure. I do. You do. But we are the gathered saints of the living God. We're grateful to gather but then he says, third, the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. And we talked last week about the buttress being the foundation. The corner of which is Jesus Christ. And the pillars are the, the growing up, the standard structure for the church. And he says that foundation and the structure being built up into the form of the church must be truth. According to the Apostle Paul, the foundation, the structure of Meadowbrook and other churches must be biblical truth. And we saw last week that if Meadowbrook is going to be a church filled with truth, it has to have members filled with truth. That you can't have something collectively that we are not individually. And so it's powerful when we individually pursue truth in our life and live truth and proclaim truth so that as we gather together, we are truth. And as we serve and we minister and we do missions locally and around the world, let it be done in truth. Let Meadowbrook be known as people of the Bible. So according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, is the family of God, the church of the living God, grounded and built on biblical truth. He says we ought to demonstrate and declare gospel truth. And that's where I want to focus today. First is this demonstrating true gospel living. So gospel living is a result of being transformed by the Holy Spirit and his word. In fact, the church is powerful in our testimony in Christ when we demonstrate 
true gospel living not proclaim gospel living but we demonstrate true gospel living I want to demonstrate true gospel living I want my sons my grandsons my wife my family my friends you and others in this community I want you to know the gospel is alive in me and I want every one of us to have that same functionality just living out the demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ now let me remind you what that is not Christian living is not attempting to accomplish the perceived expectations of God and others it is not striving to live in righteousness in fact gospel living is knowing the love of God and being at peace with him because you recognize Christ Jesus has made him at peace with you that he has taken away your sin and he has imputed you with his own righteousness thereby bringing peace into your life with God so you can engage God in prayer and in his word and in life resting in the gospel truth and when you get that it's not a scrimping and scraping and clawing and climbing towards the gospel demonstration it is understanding the truth of the gospel and just begin living that out from the inside out living out the expressions of all that God is doing in you in Christ Jesus and his wondrous word. So God sources our gospel living with the resurrection of Jesus. When I was talking to Catherine Rollins earlier, as I was reminding her, in Christ you have died to your sin, in Christ you have resurrected by the Holy Spirit to walk in a new way of life. That new way is the proclamation of God's word and the empowerment of that word by the Holy Spirit. And if she'll buy into that truth and she'll give her life to that, she will walk forever changed, demonstrated by the gospel in her, the transformation that is in her. I want that for all of us. It's not just about her, you see. It's the work of the gospel, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that enables her to begin walking differently with a new nature because she has a presence of God living within her. So the gospel living is knowing God's love and grace freely given to us and choosing to live and walk by that faith and new life and mind and identity. In other words gospel living is living with and in the identity of Jesus Christ that's gospel living understanding Christ understanding the life of Christ in you and the transformation by his spirit and the empowerment to live differently among the members here at Meadowbrook we have some of the same named people there are two Don Campbells here one sits back there and one sits right there there are two Bill Joneses here. There are two Kevin Boyds, as if we needed another one. <laughs> and catch this, there are two Randy Gunters. I'm sorry. I first met Randy Gunter a few years ago here at Meadowbrook and I introduced myself to him and I said Randy I'm going to work real hard to keep your rep reputation pure and I'd really appreciate it if you do the same thing <laughs> he reminded me this morning because I said hey Randy I'm going to mention you today He's, he reminded me this morning that he was pretty petrified not to mess this thing up 
really it was me who was petrified. But you know, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's a lot like that. So Randy and I are to live our lives in a way that we represent each other well because you never know who's gonna say, did you hear about Randy Gunner? They don't know which Randy Gunner they're talking about. Did you hear about Kevin Boyd? I don't know which Kevin Boyd they're talking about. Did you hear about Jesus Christ and his life in that person? Did you hear about Meadowbrook? Did you hear about so-and-so? You know, they claim Christ. Did you hear about her? You know, she's a member over there at Meadowbrook. See, when you're in the household, when you're part of the family, when you're connected, when your life is in somebody and you share the same family, the same purpose, and the same name, you are connected. So it is absolutely essential that you and I demonstrate gospel living if we are going to proclaim gospel life. You can't live one way in this area of your life and another way when you come to church because you are connecting an understanding of Christ and his living church by the demonstration of your life. And I challenge the new folks who come here at Meadowbrook when we have our membership connections, I challenge them to live their life in a demonstration of this church and a demonstration of Christ and I tell them, you're not going to find me coming out of a movie wondering, what's Randy doing in that movie? And you're not going to see me stumbling out of some bar drunk. Was that Randy? I think that was Randy. You're not going to see that. I am not going to embarrass this church, and I'm not going to bring reproach on the name of Jesus. With all the effort that the Spirit of God empowers in me, I want to demonstrate Christ well. And you should expect that of me. And catch this, God expects it of you. If your life is being transformed by Christ and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, by the wonder of his word, then there's an expectation that you're going to demonstrate gospel living. If you're not transformed by the gospel, then my friend, stop talking as if you are. Just don't play that game. Man, does that ever hurt the fellowship and the identity of Christ in his church. Everybody knows you're faking it. We can tell. You can tell it in me if I was faking it. Everybody knows, so just don't try. Surrender your life to Christ and then live out that gospel life is it any wonder why Paul says, hey, this is my purpose. I want to come there and tell you myself, but in case I don't make it, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know how to behave in the church. And right off the bat, he says, and how do you behave in the church? Demonstrate true gospel living. That's how you do it. All right, second point that he says. Not only is it demonstrating gospel living, but it is declaring gospel truth. All right, so Meadowbrook is meant to be the pillar and the buttress of truth. 
which is evident when our people are demonstrating transformed lives, you recognize that a transformed life is one who has embraced truth and living out that truth and then can declare that truth to other people. Because I can tell you, if you're one who demonstrates true gospel living, people are going to wonder what is the hope that is in you. And when they ask you, what is this hope in you? The Bible says that you and I ought to declare what that hope is. The hope is in Christ. The transformation of Christ in us. So in this text, at the end of the chapter, Paul just breaks out in a doxology of truth. It's just like a praise moment. And all that he is declaring in these verses is truth about Jesus. Let's go back through that again in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So our declaration, our confession is the mystery of godliness. Now, what in the world is that? When Paul is talking about a mystery about the gospel, what he is saying is there was something in the Old Testament period that was a mystery. People didn't quite understand it, but now it has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So nobody could quite understand how it is that we are ever going to have righteousness because they are trying to live rightly with the law of God and they could not accomplish it. They wanted so desperate to be cleansed before God, but there was a requirement of animal sacrifice over and over and over. And if you had this amazing moment on the day of atonement, you would know that tomorrow the moment is gonna be needed again. And all that year, the compounded sin is going to be very uh, relevant in your life. And there would be another need for Yom Kippur. You would know that. The mystery of godliness is that God is not going to just atone for your sin, cover over your sin. The mystery is that God is going to eradicate it. God is going to make it so cleansed from you, it's just like it never happened. That's a mystery that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So now he's saying there's a mystery of godliness that is known to us, and it is Christ Jesus, of course, and so he just bursts forth in praise about Jesus Christ. Now, there are three lines. With each of the lines, there's two main points that he's, that he's addressing, sort of bookends, if you will, about Jesus Christ. And look what he says in this first one. Jesus was manifested in the flesh and he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, I'm going to tell you where he's going here. He was incarnated, he was brought about, God in the flesh, and he was vindicated by the Spirit in the resurrection. So he came in humility with only the people at the lowest of life recognizing him, but he was vindicated in the end by the Spirit as he was resurrected from the grave. Now, if I just break that down for a minute, just to remind you how amazing this wondrous miracle is. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all creation. If creation is, it is because Jesus has made it to be. If creation continues, it's because Jesus is sustaining it, holding it in his hand. Can I remind you there's coming a day in the future that he's gonna release all that and it is gonna implode. It will forever be gone, 
But until that time, Jesus the creator is the sustainer of all things. And he who created all things and brought all things to life came to live in the midst of his creation. It's, it's a wondrous truth that the eternal judge enthroned in glory allowed himself to be erroneously judged by very sinful people that's a mystery that you just can't quite wrap your head around the life giver gave his own life on the cross of calvary that we might live eternally justified with god the father so jesus is laying down his life there's a purpose for him coming he would lay down his life so that he might take it up again gloriously and how is he taking it up again gloriously but by the vindication of the holy spirit Jesus' death and resurrection is the means of our victory over sin, over judgment, over death, over the grave. And the Spirit of God vindicated him, proved him to be who he is, and the resurrection is the testimony of that proof. So pointing out that Jesus is the manifestation of God in the flesh Paul's highlighting the incarnation of God in the form of man. And by mentioning the Holy Spirit's vindication of Jesus, he is spotlighting the glorious resurrection of Christ. In other words, if you're going to declare the truth about God, if you're going to declare the truth about the gospel, let it begin with God came to earth to dwell among us and let it end with, and God proved himself to be God because only he is resurrected from the grave. Make sure your gospel presentation is in that. That's what Paul is saying. Live the demonstration of the gospel and declare the gospel's presentation. It begins with how did God come to earth and how did God leave the earth? He came humbly and he left gloriously. Oh, by the way, he's coming again in a glorious way. Look at the second thing he says about this statement of truth of Jesus. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. Now, this line points to the witnesses of Christ. Uh, one of the witnesses of Christ is the populace of heaven, the angels, and the other is the, the populace of the earth. I need probably not to remind you, but it was the angels who foretold about the birth of Christ, that he was coming, told that to Mary. And then among the, uh, those who heard of his arrival, it was the shepherds in the field, the lowest class of all the people. The angels were making that proclamation known. And it was the angels who ministered to Jesus when he was in the wilderness as he was beginning his public ministry. And it was the angels who ministered to him at the end of his public ministry on the very night of his arrest, the night before his crucifixion, there in the garden of prayer. The angels attended and witnessed and proclaimed the Lord's resurrection. It was the angels who were there when the women came to find the body of Christ. And they didn't find the body. And the angels announced the resurrection of Jesus Christ, told them where he would meet them. The angels were there as Christ was ascending as well. And it was the angels who helped them to discover the resurrection of Christ. And then those multiplied, and 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus, proclaimed his resurrection from that day forward, told the world about his gospel message. They ignited a flame of God's saving grace. And that message now is flamed all across the nations. 
The messengers were unstoppable. Those 500 witnesses began to proclaim what they knew about Jesus. And though some rejected, most rejected them and opposed them and imprisoned them and beat them and stoned them and looked to kill them in many other ways, they did not stop the message of the gospel. They knew Christ. And once they knew him in his resurrection, you could not silence them. And so what began as a ripple there in Jerusalem began to be a cataclysmic tsunami of truth all over the world and all the crazy thoughts and ways of religion around the world was beginning to bow to the truth of Jesus Christ. He was seen by angels, declared among the populace of the world. Then third, he was believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The Holy Spirit empowered those 500 witnesses on the day of Pentecost and they began to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the mission of Christ as he commissioned them to do so. And what began in Jerusalem went on through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And now here you and me and so many others, countless others around the world transformed by the gospel. I want everybody in this room and those who are listening by our streaming services or the radio or some podcast, I want you to come to true faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the message of the gospel and believe the message of the gospel, be transformed by the message of the gospel. Here's a promise that God gives to you. In John chapter one, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Listen, that can happen for you today. Trusting in Christ, he will transform you from the inside out. He'll empower you to live in faith in the new way that Christ has afforded for you. And of course, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into glory. And as he was taken up in glory, can you imagine the cheers of the angels as they were welcoming the Son of God home after he had redeemed mankind, purchasing our redemption? Their song forever was changed. Their song now is worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb because he and he alone was worthy to redeem and did redeem us. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. My friends, listen carefully. Because as Jesus was taken up in glory, he will return in glory. He is coming again. The church needs to have this as our mantra, that he is coming again. As we saw him leave in glory, so we will see him return in glory. And oh, that we would be ready by living the demonstration of the transformation of the gospel and proclaiming that gospel good news. I couldn't help but think about the Baptist faith and message this past week because it was so in the forefront. It's our doctrinal faith statement as a church and collective churches making up the Southern Baptist Convention. Here's the paragraph of that section of our doctrine. God 
in his own time and his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end according to the promise Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth the dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness the unrighteous will be consigned to hell the place of everlasting punishment the righteous to the resurrected to their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord amen so all of this connects beautifully together as Jesus makes it so that we can be in the household of God, adopting us into the family of God. Jesus is the head of the church of the living God. We are his body. Jesus is the truth by which the church is founded and built and all of our missions and ministry are rooted in. Jesus is the means for transformed living in the gospel and Jesus is our message his message is our hope and his hope is our hope that we might be with him eternally forever and ever and so may that doxology of praise that Paul wrote so well be our doxology as well let it be centered in Jesus Christ now let's just pause for a moment and pray Father, I pray in this moment that there are some who are coming to faith in you, understanding the need for your gospel because they understand that they were born into a world that is filled with sin, and they too, born in sin, in need of your mercy, in need of your love, and recognizing that that was presented to us and brought to us by Jesus Christ. So from this day forward, may they be given in faith to him. And as they are given in faith to him, may they lay down their lives and all that they have been pursuing and follow hard after Jesus. As his spirit dwells within them by faith, let them walk with newness of life. And I pray that their life would exude the gospel and their words would exemplify that of truth and faith as they declare your gospel truth. This we pray unto Jesus Christ, amen.